0: So when I was younger, um, I was rather small for my age. So I've always looked younger than I am, still do, but now translate that not only to sort of my facial features but my size. When I was a kid, I was incredibly small, like super short. And one of the things uh, that happened to me is I I, I can remember when I would be in like lines, say at the cafeteria or in some sort of Restaurant or something where maybe they're dishing up food uh, to my plate is that I would sort of get sized up and be given small, very small portions. And I used to find this incredibly annoying because despite my size, I had a, 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 a large appetite, a um, high metabolism, and I always wanted to eat more. But they would always size me up and be like, this kid must not eat very much. And I'm like, hey, if we're paying. This amount of money, give me the portion size for that size food. Don't jit don't, don't me just because I look small. Now, we probably would never say this, but nonetheless, maybe sometimes we find ourselves thinking that there are certain types of people that the gospel is more for than for others. It's more for these type of people than for others those type of people, that we find ourselves sort of sizing people up in a similar way. Maybe we think it's more for those who have the trappings of a more traditionally religious person. Maybe they're nicely, the people that are sort of nicely dressed, they have a stable job, a nice house out in the suburbs. They sort of look the part, they look a certain way. They can present a certain way. They can interact and communicate in a certain way. Maybe they even vote a certain way. They're the sort of person that we would feel comfortable having in our gatherings, and they would feel comfortable, and they would fit right in in most evangelical churches. And then there are those who maybe don't fit your stereotype as much. Maybe they come from the quote-unquote wrong sides of the tracks, Maybe they are those who are lined up opposite you in a culture war. Maybe it's the person who is culturally foreign to you. Maybe you can think of family members or friends or coworkers that you feel like would fit this category in your mind. Or maybe you're here today and you're thinking that of yourself, that the gospel is not for me. It's not for my type of person. Uh, Last week, Sam preached on chapter 7, 1 through 23, uh, in which Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes who are concerned with these sort of practices, these traditions that they've developed um, that have to do with uh, whether uh, uh, certain practices that would defile a person, whether that's washing your hands, uh, doing sort of ritual cleansings, or whether it's certain foods. Um, And Jesus says all foods are now... um, are now, by, by, by saying that it's, that it's not uh, what goes into the body, but what comes out of the body that actually is defiling, he declares all foods clean. And so there's a section beforehand that talks about practices that defile. Well, now in our passage today, Jesus is going to turn to people that are, quote-unquote, defiled. Gentiles. As I as I just alluded to, one of the things that Jesus, uh, the implications of Jesus's teaching from last week's passage is that if all food, if if it's not what goes into the body that makes one unclean, um, but what comes out of the heart that makes one unclean, Mark adds the comment. So by saying this, he declared all foods clean. We see that one of the ways that Jews and Gentiles were were uh, were split apart and categorized and divided was by this practice of certain food laws, such that if you remember in Acts 10 and 11, when God communicates to Peter, hey, I want you to go to this God-fearing Gentile, Cornelius, I want you to, show that, I want you to know that the gospel is extending even to Gentiles. What does he do? He shows Peter a vision of unclean food coming down, um, and, and God tells him, take up and eat. Eat the unclean food, symbolizing that the gospel is now going to Gentiles And so here right after Jesus deals with practices that they would have believed defiled people, now Jesus immediately goes to the people that would have been considered defiled themselves, the people who would have who would not have been uh, following such guidelines, the people who would have been outside of God's covenant community And so our passage today teaches this: It teaches that Jesus' saving reign extends to Gentiles, the religious outsider. Jesus' saving reign extends to Gentiles who have been given ears to hear. And we get two interrelated passages. uh, The Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is healed, or, or the demon is expelled, that is. And then we have the man, the deaf man, who is healed. So let's begin with the Syrophoenician woman. Read with me verses 24 and through 26. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, that is a defiling spirit, Heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, this woman is, by all appearances, one of the most unlikely recipients of Jesus' miracles by, by the standards of that day, by the standards of, of, of those in this context. First of all, she is a Gentile. She is a Syro-Phoenician. She is not a Jew. She is not within the covenant community. Additionally, she is a woman. And in, those, in that day and age, women were seen as inferior. Uh, women would not approach a rabbi. That is a very audacious thing for her to be doing, to be coming up and approaching a rabbi. And not just a woman, but as we saw, a Gentile woman. Not only so, but uh, as a Gentile, she's specifically from Tyre, as we'll see. Tyre. And at this time, although there had been good relations in earlier times in uh, Israel's history, uh, at this time, as history developed, Tyre is often lambasted by the prophets as a city of corruption and materialism and uh, excessive wealth um, and and corruption. And so at this point, there's a lot of animosity between Israel and Tyre. Josephus, a Jewish historian from that time period, even describes them as, quote, notoriously our most bitter enemies. So this is not uh, a sort of friendly, friendly relationship. And then finally, she has a daughter with an unclean spirit. We just got talking about defilement last week, and now we have a woman who, whose daughter has a defiling spirit. So she has many strikes against her, and yet she is bold enough to approach Christ. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now Jesus is using a parable, as he oftentimes teaches in parables, and here he's using this parable of sort of the family meal, where there are children who are sitting down at the table to eat and then there are these dogs. And here he uses a a word dog that is most likely referring to kind of like a pet, which would not have been common in Jewish culture, but more common in maybe Gentile culture. So he's kind of setting the image of a family meal and there are dogs who oftentimes if you have a dog, you know, they kind of circle around the table, they're waiting for crumbs to fall off the table, but then there's the children as well. Now we read this and we immediately think, you know, that sounds really harsh, Jesus to call, now what he's doing, if you haven't picked up on it, is by calling, he's referring to the Jewish people as the children and the Gentiles as the dogs here. That's the image, right? And so this seems really harsh, does it not? And although it may feel sort of stark to us, in fact, Jesus sets up this parable, something as a test, a test that is meant to invite her to actually receive. Notice that Jesus says, let the children be fed first. He doesn't say, let the children only be fed, but let them be fed first. Of course, you eventually feed dogs. You have pet dogs. So Jesus is sort of inviting her to accept the challenge of his parable. Now, what does this mean, children being fed first, the Jewish people fed first? Well, this fits into what God was doing in redemptive history, what he's done in redemptive history, by electing, by selecting Israel to be his means of spreading his salvation to the nations. And so we see God's selection of Israel reflected even in the mission, as the Christian mission goes out, as Jesus' mission goes out. Jesus is first and foremost sent to the children of Israel. We see this reflected in the early church's mission, as Paul says in Romans 1.6, sixteen, I mean, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes. It's indiscriminate. it's for everyone, nonetheless, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a sort of ordering to how the mission carried out that's reflective of the, the redemptive historical uh, selection that God made. And we see this in Paul's practice in the book of Acts. In Acts 17, for instance, we read of Paul going into the synagogue, and it says in 17.2, as was his custom. Paul's custom, if you read through the book of Acts, is that he goes to the synagogue first in these cities. The the synagogue is the place where the Jewish people would have worshipped and studied Torah, and so that's sort of a ready-made place to do evangelism, but he's also going there because salvation first comes to the Jews. But when he's rejected by the Jews, what does he do? Then he goes to the Gentiles. And so we read in Acts 18, 6, after Jesus is rejected there, he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So how does the woman respond? Verse 28, read with me. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon, the unclean spirit, has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, resting, calm, and the demon gone. We see in this woman an example of bold faith, of someone who understands and grasps who Jesus is and and acts out by expressing faith in him, looking to him. In fact, as one commentator pointed out, this is actually the first incident in the entire Gospel of Mark where someone immediately grasps the meaning of one of Jesus' parables without needing any extra explanation. She is the first person to hear a parable and immediately understand its intent. Also, she shows us an example of the sort of humility that Jesus will later tell us is necessary for someone to Enter the kingdom of God. Later in chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus brings a child and sets a child before the disciples. And he says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And here's this woman having heard a parable where she's situated as a dog and she says, yes, I embrace that status, but even the dogs eat the crumbs, Jesus. And we see Jesus responding by healing from a distance. Think of the power there. He doesn't have to be near. We've seen other times where they bring someone to him. But here he's just able to say the word. He doesn't have to touch her. He doesn't have to see her. He simply says the word, and it is. Just like God in the beginning who speaks creation into existence. So Jesus speaks his will into existence. Now, this whole section that we've been in and that we are in the midst of uh, it's chapter 630 to 821. Okay, that's the section we're in right now, chapter 630 to 821. It's capped off by two feeding miracles. Dan already preached one of those, the feeding of the 5,000. We're also going to get another feeding miracle immediately after this. So you have this section, and there's two feeding miracles at the beginning and the end. This whole section has this, this encompassing theme about a failure to understand, a failure to understand Jesus, who Jesus is, and how God works and his activities in this world. This theme of understanding, okay? Uh, if, you, if you have your Bible open, turn to chapter 6, 49 to 51. I want to show you this theme. I think it's really important to understanding our passage and what it's doing here, how this passage fits into that larger uh, section that larger context chapter 6 49 to 51 here we see that this, the disciples first fail to understand who Jesus is 649 but when they saw Jesus walking on the sea they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart it is I do not be afraid and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves. Okay, we're connecting it back to the first feeding miracle. They didn't understand that. They still don't understand. But notice, they do not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. They don't understand as their hearts are hardened. Notice that word understand, though. Now turn to, turn to chapter 7, 14 to 18. Here, we now see the Pharisees and the scribes. In this section, and their failure to understand, but now Jesus, in verse 14, pulls... Let's read in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. He's calling them to understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. So now he's speaking to his disciples, explaining what that parable meant. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? They fail to understand his teachings about what is truly defiling. Now we'll go to chapter 8, verse 17 and verse 21. This is the section after today's passage, uh, what Dan will be preaching next week. Now, here we have the disciples and the Pharisees combined. So, first we see the disciples fail to understand. Then there's a section focused largely on the Pharisees and the scribes, although the disciples again fail to understand. And here the two groups are combined the disciples and the Pharisees. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Again, we have another feeding miracle here. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Again, same language. Verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, in the midst of all this, this, this focus on understanding and examples upon examples of people failing to understand, what's our passage here today? It is this Gentile woman of all people who demonstrates understanding faith. A faith that grants true understanding that truly grasps who Jesus is, a faith born out of a true grasp of who Jesus is, we might say. Again, our passage tells us this, that Jesus's saving reign extends to Gentiles, even Gentiles, these religious outsiders who have been given ears to hear. The gospel, in other words, is for those who are religiously outsiders it's for the unexpected. It's for those we don't expect. The gospel is for those who don't fit our stereotypes. That God's grace doesn't work that way. God's grace, grace means it's undeserved. He gives mercy to whoever, whoever he wills, as Paul says in Romans 9. It's not dictated by our expectations flowing to people as we might think it ought to work. The wind blows where it wishes, and so the Spirit in John 3 gives new life to whomever God wills. Jesus' interaction with this woman shows us that faith often emerges from the places that we least expect it. As we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that Jesus is the unexpected king. And this unexpected king is embraced by unexpected people. And maybe you're you're here today as someone who might think to themselves that, you know, this Christianity thing, it it just isn't for me. I don't fit the bill of the sort of person that Jesus is after, the sort of person that, that, that would become a Christian. But we see from this passage that Jesus goes after the least expected among us. And here it's the least expected who actually demonstrates faith that others, even Jesus' own disciples, even the religious experts of that day, a faith that they lack, she demonstrates and so our second scene is of this deaf man, this man who is unable to hear, and probably because of that, it says he has a speech impediment. Oftentimes, folks who can't hear have a difficulty, some difficulty speaking as they can't hear themselves. That seems to be what's going on here. Read verse 31 and 32 with me. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf, who had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, these two paragraphs of the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man, I think, are meant to be read together. They go together. They're working together to communicate a unified message. We see that in some of the parallels, the intentional parallels here. First, there are two miracles, obviously. There is the exorcism, and then there's the healing. So we get two miracle accounts. Both of them, you'll notice, too, begin with reference to Tyre and Sidon. So they have that same geographical reference that sort of heads off both paragraphs. They are both in Gentile territory. So we go to uh, Tyre, and now we are in the Decapolis, which is a region near the Sea of Galilee, but would have been Gentile cities. And so this is Gentile territory. And then you'll also notice there's reference to begging in both, that, that someone is brought to Jesus or comes to Jesus, and they are begging him to act. So the woman comes and she begs Jesus. Here they bring the man and they beg Jesus to heal him. So there's these interesting parallels. Now, as we said, we have a deaf man who is brought to Jesus who has a speech impediment. And now let's read in verse 33 to the end to see what happens. And taking, taking him, this deaf man, aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, Jesus touched his tongue. And looking, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetheth, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Jesus heals this man. That whatever was going on, I don't, I don't understand all the science behind why someone would be deaf, whether there's components within the ear or it's a neurological thing. But whatever it was in his case, as Jesus heals this man, those parts of his body are restored. That as God created the world and, and the curse entered in on account of sin and the curse has these physical effects even on our body as we're susceptible to death, we're susceptible to disease, that Jesus comes in as the creator and he, undo- he undoes the curse. He restores this man's healing. And so his ears are opened, it says. His, his tongue is released. Literally, it's the chain on his tongue is, is released. His mouth is unchained. And Mark uses this peculiar word to describe the deaf man. In verse 32, before he's healed, he refers to him as having in the ESV, it says a speech impediment, this difficulty of speech. This word occurs only one other time in the entire Bible, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of Isaiah 35. If you would turn to Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah 35 describes a time in the future when Yahweh, God, would visit his people to bring salvation, restoring creation, and reversing the effects of the curse. Things such as giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and speech to the mute. The same word, the mute there, that same word that we have in Mark seven thirty-two. Read with me. Isaiah 35, four through six. Isaiah prophesies this. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's that word. The tongue of the mute will be opened and sing for joy. Mark seems to be alluding to this passage with this especially peculiar word that we don't see very often. That he's sort of linking back. He's hyperlinking to this passage, we might say, to draw our minds back to Isaiah 35. To say this, in other words that this Jesus is that visitation of Yahweh come to save his people. Jesus has, in fact, come to visit Yahweh as Isaiah prophesied, and this is Jesus. He has come to save his people and undo the effects of the curse. And Jesus' healing of this blind man signals that he is the fulfillment of this promise from Isaiah. In addition, Mark 7, 37, verse 37 the crowds respond to Jesus's miracle this way. Mark says, and they were astonished beyond measure saying, quote, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And many have noted that this language, he has done all things well, is intriguingly similar to the Greek of Genesis 1 where it reads, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very Good. He has done all things well. It was very good. In the Greek, it's incredibly similar. In other words, just as God created the world and it was good, so now God in flesh has entered his creation, has entered his world, and is remaking things good. He is undoing the effects of the curse on his creation. He is undoing blindness He's undoing deafness, he is undoing muteness, and he is once again making all things good as they ought to be, as he created them to be. And notably here, this salvation, this new creation that Isaiah predicted is being experienced again even by Gentiles, such as the Syrophoenician woman and now this deaf man. As God's new creation is breaking in, even as it was promised to Israel in Judah, it is also now breaking in among the Gentiles. That Jesus' is saving reign, as we've seen, it even extends to Gentiles, the religious outsiders who have been given ears to hear. But I think there's also something more going on in this paragraph. That as we've already seen, this section, chapter 630 to 821... It centers on this theme of understanding, people's ability or lack thereof to understand and grasp Jesus, right? Well, interestingly, Mark makes significant use of sense perception imagery throughout the book to image, to symbolize this sort of spiritual understanding. Mark uses sense perception imagery, hearing, seeing, to symbolize one's spiritual understanding ability to understand. So look at Mark chapter 4 with me, if you turn back to Mark 4. Mark 4 is, you you may remember, the parable of the soils, where Jesus is really providing an answer to why some people understand and others don't, why some people receive the gospel and others don't. And he says there's, it's as if a man sows Uh, seed among soil and the seed falls on different types of soil some of the soil is receptive and others is not well in the middle of this section Jesus provides an explanation to his disciples which is verse 11 and 12 and he said to them his disciples to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God but for those outside everything is in parables So that, notice this, they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. People have an ability to to see, but they don't really see. They can hear, but they don't really hear. And then look at how Jesus closes uh, the parable in verse 9. If you just look up a little bit in verse 9, how he closed the parable, he said this. He who has, notice, ears to hear, let him hear. Or even in verse 3, how Jesus opens the parable. He says, Listen, hear, in other words. Now look at Jesus' explanation of the parable starting in verse 15. As Jesus goes, goes through to the disciples and explains what the parable means, he explains what the different soils represent. In verse 15, when he's talking about the seeds sown on the path, he says, when they hear, when the seeds so, sown on the path, when they hear, Satan immediately comes. Verse 16, the ones sown on rocky ground, when they hear. Verse 18, the seeds among thorns are those who hear. Verse 20, but those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. And so look at the parable that follows. In chapter 4, 23 through 24, Four, twenty-three through 24, 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. You need to pay attention to how you hear, how you listen. And then he closes this section, Mark closes a section in verse 33, summarizing it this way with many such parables jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it he's not talking about physical capacity to hear here it's imagery mark uses hearing here or the way one hears as imagery for one's spiritual capacity to understand the gospel of the kingdom of what god is doing bringing the kingdom through jesus christ Jesus is God's saving reign restored through Jesus Christ. And so in our immediate section, if you turn to Mark eighteen or Mark 8, 17 to 18, there's no chapter 18, you're not going to find that. Mark 8, 17 to 18. This is the passage that, that immediately follows today's, path, today's passage. This is a text that Dan will preach next week. Mark 8, 17 to 18. Notice how Jesus rebukes his disciples here. For there, again, failure to understand. Notice the imagery that he uses. Verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Verse 21, And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Now, Jesus mentions two examples here in these verses of sensory impairment. One, having eyes but lacking an ability to see, blindness. And having ears but not being able to hear, deafness. Those are the two that he gives as, as sort of images right here in chapter 8. Now, interestingly, on each side of this passage, we get accounts of Jesus healing then both a blind man in chapter 8, 22 to 26, and a deaf man, 7, 31 to 37, our passage today. If you, you can just look at, you probably have headings in your Bible. If you just look on either side of this passage, you'll see that there is the healing of a blind man, and in our passage today, the healing of the deaf man, the two things he's just mentioned as imagery of inability to perceive spiritually. The two impairments he just mentioned here then are symbolic of spiritual dullness and inability to rightly understand or grasp who Jesus is. It, Jesus is, and interestingly, there are also some rather unique parallels between these two healing accounts—the one in our passage today, seven thirty-one to thirty-seven, and then that of the blind man to follow, eight twenty-two to twenty-six. Notice these parallels that sort of set these two together. Again, in eight twenty-two to twenty-six, in the account of the blind man. People bring the blind man to Jesus just as they brought the deaf man to Jesus here. And so to there with the blind man, they, again, beg, same word used, beg Jesus to heal him. In both accounts, Jesus uses his spit to conduct the miracle. And interestingly, in Mark, these are the only two times he ever does something like that. It's kind of odd. That's not normal for Jesus to do. In both incidences, Jesus touches the man, which he oftentimes does. He often touches people when he heals them. But he touches these men specifically where he heals them. He touches them on the organ, needing healing. He touches their eyes or their tongue or sticks his fingers in their ears. And as we just saw with the woman who had the daughter with the unclean spirit, Jesus doesn't need to touch people in order to heal them. He does it at a distance, right? So Jesus is sort of going out of his way to touch them and then to touch them in very specific ways that Mark mentions. In both both cases, they ask Jesus to lay hands on the man. In both cases, Jesus takes the man aside to a private location. In both cases, Jesus commands silence. Don't tell other people or don't go to the main area of the town at least. Now, as we'll see in future weeks, The healing of this blind man in this future passage occurs in two stages. Initially, he only partially receives his sight before eventually receiving full sight from Jesus. And as we'll see when I preach that passage in two weeks, this partial sight is meant to symbolize the disciples' partial grasp of Jesus. They grasp, in other words, that Jesus is the Messiah, but they fail to grasp what sort of Messiah he is. One who suffers and calls them to suffer. They have a partial grasp, and so the partial healing of the blind man symbolizes that. In other words, the healing of the blind man is symbolic. That's the main thing I want you to get. So, likewise, given the parallels between these two healing accounts, and given Mark's frequent use of ears and hearing imagery for spiritual perception. I think the account of the healing of this deaf man in our passage today is also intended to function somewhat symbolically. That out of all the people, it's this Gentile Syrophoenician woman who demonstrates an ability to understand Jesus. But how does she gain that understanding? How does she come about having faith? Well, as Jesus' healing of this deaf man shows us, it is Jesus alone who opens our ears to hear. Jesus' saving reign even extends to Gentiles, to religious outsiders who have been given ears to hear. That salvation we see in this passage then, if my argument is correct, this passage illustrates that salvation is by grace alone. That the only way we come about truly having our ears opened to hear the gospel is by Jesus actually curing us of our spiritual deafness to it. As we think about Paul when he, is, when he is accosted on the road to Damascus and then he has these scales that eventually fall from his eyes. It's like the same thing from us. We need our spiritual blindness removed or here we need our deafness removed. We can hear the gospel physically We can hear it proclaimed, but we, apart from God's intervening grace, we have a spiritual deafness to the gospel. And it is only by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit, opening our ears to hear it and to truly grasp it, to truly see the beauty of Christ and to embrace him in saving faith. Jesus' saving reign even extends to Gentiles, to the religious outsider who has been given ears to hear. As we saw as we've already discussed, God selected Israel in redemptive history. So go back to the Old Testament, God selected Israel. Why? So that through Israel he might bring salvation to the nations. It was through Israel that he made his covenant and his covenant promises so that through them the message of salvation would go to the ends of the earth. This, be, this is from the very get-go as God elects Abraham, the, 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 the patriarch of the, of the Jewish people, In Genesis 12, 3, one of the promises to Abraham is that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel, in other words, was not selected and elected for its own sake, but to be a vehicle for the nations, of God's purposes to restore the nations. And the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament pick up on this. For example, Isaiah 49, verses 3 and 6. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel. Israel, you are my servant, the servant of Yahweh, in whom I will be glorified. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is, in fact, that true seed from Abraham's line. That as Eve was promised, that there would be a seed, one of her offspring, who would crush the head of the serpent. And as that seed promise picks up, as Abraham is promised to have seed, and that through his seed, through him, blessing would go to the nations. And as Israel is meant to be this sort of vehicle to spread salvation to the nations, Jesus ultimately is that seed. Jesus ultimately is the true Israel through whom God is bringing salvation to the nations. And how does Jesus ultimately bring this, this, this blessing to the nations? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians three, thirteen to 14. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That the actual promise, of God's, the God's salvation plan as he promised it through Abraham and, and his descendants that is now actually extended to The Gentiles. And how does this happen? It is by Christ bearing our curse. He becomes a curse for us. The assumption there is, is, as Paul is talking, is that in our sin we have actually, we've actually uh, incurred debt before God. That God is our righteous judge. When we sin, we deserve punishment. We are actually cursed. As Adam and Eve, they, they bring the curse in their sin, and humanity experiences a curse, so we reverberate that rebellion. And we continue to experience God's curse as we sin against him. But Jesus undoes the curse by becoming a curse for us. He identifies with our cursedness on the cross and is forsaken on the cross in our place so that all then those who trust in him receive the blessings of salvation that were intended for the nations. And we see this mission of Jesus as Jesus comes for Gentiles like the Syrophoenician woman, like this deaf man. That even in the very mission of Jesus, even as he says, I go to the children first. He nonetheless makes these intentional detours to Gentiles to, to show us that his mission ultimately is also for Gentiles. That this mission then is extended in the church. We see this in the book of Acts, that as Jesus commissions his disciples in Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus empowers his people with the Spirit. And you're you're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome having done that. He's in Rome to the ends of the earth spreading the gospel, not only to Jewish people, but to Gentiles. Our mission, in other words... Is entailed in the mission of Jesus Jesus's own mission here of going to Gentiles it is it is as we are an extension of his mission our mission is an extension of his as as God has sent him so he sends us he says in John so our mission is is entailed in his Revelation 5 9 one of my favorite passages as John sees this vision of the heavenly throne room And he's left wondering who has authority to take the scroll. The scroll where God's plan of redemption, his plan of history is written down. Who has the authority to execute that plan? The lamb is the one who is slain. By being slain, he is able to execute God's plan of redemption and his purpose for history. And and, and the the creatures around the throne room sing to Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And notice this, by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' death includes our mission. Jesus has already purchased people from every tribe, nation, and language and tongue. Our job is to simply go and gather them up now. Mission is assumed in Jesus' mission. Mission is assumed in the atonement. And this passage calls us not to set up limits on the universality of God's saving kingdom. Who this kingdom is for. This passage calls us to see past any boundaries that we've conceived in our mind It calls us to dismantle any borders to the kingdom that we've constructed, any sense of who the kingdom is for. It's for this people and not those people. And lastly, I think a passage like this calls us to gratitude, a life filled with thankfulness that we have been made citizens of this kingdom. Not only can we think of a passage like this from from the perspective of, hey, this calls us to go reach people all sorts of people, but we are also that same people ourselves who have been reached, right? We are the same people who have had our own ears open to the gospel. If you're a believer here today, that is, it's because Jesus has opened your ears to hear the gospel and make you a part of his kingdom. I think we can help ourselves come to appreciate this truth by asking this sort of question, maybe reflecting on this question. What would life be like If the message of this passage wasn't true, if Jesus' mission was constrained, if if it didn't include all peoples, if it was maybe only for a select few, maybe just the religious elite, those who thought that they had all their defiling practices in order. Paul says this of Gentiles in Ephesians 2, in, in Ephesians 2, he begins very popularly with this passage that you were dead in your sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, has caused you to be born again. He has made you alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. So he talks about how as individuals, we've been we we've gone from dead deadness to, to, to resurrection life. We've been saved by grace. There's been a transfer of status, a change of status. But then he continues in verse 11 by talking how there's also been a change of status from Gentiles who are outsiders to now those Gentiles who are included. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the quote-unquote uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember Gentiles that you were at that time separated from the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Which means in some, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. That's what it would be like if this truth wasn't real. If this passage, the message of this passage wasn't true. We would be without hope and without God in this world. Any promises that exist, they're for other people. But now, just like he said, you used to be dead in your sins, but now God, by his grace, has saved you. So here, you used to be foreigners, used to be outsiders, but now, in Christ Jesus, here's your second but now, you who were once far off from all these things, you who were far off from the commonwealth of Israel, far off from the Messiah, far off from the saving covenant promises, you have been brought near, you have been made partakers in these things by the blood of Christ. We have reason to be thankful this morning, to just simply express God our gratitude as we respond in the Lord's Supper and as we sing to him in closing. You may recall that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he refers to the cup specifically as an emblem of the new covenant in my blood. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Now, one of the only places, it may be actually the only place where we get this language of new covenant in the Old Testament, is Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 to 34 says this. This is Jeremiah, the prophecy of God through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone. For this is the covenant that I will now make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. You're not going to have to evangelize within the covenant community for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now notice who this is promised to. Jeremiah says that God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But now Jesus... In the Lord's Supper is instituting this meal, which reflects the new covenant and is extended to the church, which includes Jew and Gentile alike, that we have been brought in. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, may that be sort of on our minds, that we have been made partakers, even uh, most of us here, I imagine Gentiles. Whatever our status, though, we are only made partakers because God has chosen and allowed us to be so. And may we express our gratitude as we partake this morning, remembering that as former outsiders, the promises of salvation are now ours as well. Because the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation, uh, that means it's specifically for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and received that salvation. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we are so glad that you are with us this morning, but we would Uh, Ask that in the meantime you would refrain from coming forward and receiving the elements. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we are to partake of the Lord's supper in a worthy way—that is, a way that is in keeping with the meaning of the Lord's supper and the gospel it proclaims. This doesn't mean that we are that we have to be sinless in order to partake, because that would disqualify all of us, right? The Lord's supper assumes that we are sinful; it assumes that we are in need of grace. It assumes that we are former outsiders, but it does mean that we, have, we are those who have placed our faith in Christ, and we are striving to follow Jesus, albeit imperfectly, without any known unrepentant sin. And so if that's you this morning. We invite you to come forward and partake.